Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back, everyone. Judges is one of the books that is starting to set the stage for what is coming. And what is coming is the king. And the idea behind this is that Israel, that all of the issues that the Israelites are having supposedly can be solved if, if they have a king. And a lot of this flows into the narrative, to a, a messianic narrative, if you will, that, that then uh, informs a Christological approach and, and, and the attitude towards Jesus and so forth. But, you know, stepping back again, the book of Judges this is a transitionary period from the conquest into the kingdom of Israel or into the kingdom with Saul and, and David and Solomon and so forth. And so we have a period that they, they call judges. And this is a time that is, you know, post-conquest, but the, the Israelites haven't quite figured out what their place is in the land and they there's some back and forth that's going on militarily uh, culturally with the people that are existing there one of the things that i thought about as as we brought up this book was just the the name we typically will talk about the names of these books and it it's that thing judges so i think what comes to mind for me when you say judges is somebody that's like an arbitrator or an adjudicator or a dispenser of justice in a legal sense. But here in the book of Judges, the characters that are referred to as judges aren't really judges in the conventional sense that we may think of them. These are more like heroes or legendary figures, largely military leaders. And except for one you know, notable exception, they don't really dispense justice or give some sort of arbitration or judgment to the people. That exception being Deborah, which we'll discuss when we get to Deborah, because she's an interesting character in that. So we're looking more at like periodic military leaders who rise up to deliver the people from bond. It's possible that people came to them from time to time to adjudicate matters, but it's not really the primary their primary function within this text. <clears throat> I think also there may be a temptation to compare them to the judges that we see in the Nephite government and the Book of Mormon, but there's not really much resemblance there beyond the shared term of judge. So the Book of Judges is what I might call a, a pseudo-history, or we've called before a sacred history. It's a period of relative instability after the conquest of the Book of Joshua, like I said. It's also something of an anthology of legends about the time. The primary message of the book of Judges is Israel needs a king. 
not judges to lead them. And the book mentions several times, it'll say something like, there was no king in Israel. And this is actually how the book ends. This is the conclusion that's made after all of this. And the end is, there was no king. The push is for a political centralization, um, especially under the rule of Judah. So the tribe of Judah is shown to have a particular military success in the book. And this would put the the date of the compilation of the book somewhere around the time of the kings Saul or David as, as a way of legitimizing the kingship, their rule. Ben, one of the things I wanted to talk about starting off in the book of Judges is to go back to when, when you and I were talking about the book of Joshua, and we've made it clear from the beginning of this podcast that we're not biblical scholars and so we're studying this and we're bringing to you, the listener, what we're learning. Now, we do come to this with uh, with a background of, of being good readers. And Ben has taught seminary. I'm a philosopher myself. We know how to read and we do a lot of reading. And so we condense that reading for you on this podcast. But the thing we haven't done is we haven't gone through this before, at least not, not me. Ben, maybe you in seminary but in a different way, right? Because we're bringing to bear historical biblical criticism, right? To, to the conversation mm-hmm. and, and still considering, right. The what's in it for us in terms of, in terms of the meaning for us, we're bringing our listeners into contact with that historical biblical criticism. Now that means that when we read judges, we were availing ourselves of sources that tell us, and these were these were extra biblical sources, such as archaeological evidence, that the conquest of Canaan that's described in the book of Joshua doesn't really happen that way. And so we we actually mentioned those sources to when we, when we talked about that. But now that we've read the book of Judges, we realize we don't even need extra biblical sources to know this, right? To co- yeah, I can come to that conclusion just by reading the book of Judges. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So be, be, even though there are these sweeping claims in the book of Joshua that all the land was conquered, here we are in Judges, and we have continuous warfare with Canaanites. You also have challenges to Israel, Israel's hegemony from different tribal groups like the Midianites and the Amalekites. And also these emerging territorial states like Moab and Ammon. And then the Philistines come on the coast. And then you also have all these aspirants to kingship within Israel, like Abimelech. Yeah. And internal anarchy resulting from the absence of kingship. So for all of these, um, all of these things going on, all these challenges to hegemony that show us that we just don't have what's pictured in and of course it's we we discussed it in the book of joshua what is the rhetoric of conquest right this is now the reality and that reality looks different from from the from the rhetoric yeah so what as i was saying you know a lot of the rhetoric of this book here the book of judges is to provide like a historical context and and justification reasoning for why the next step would be look Israel needs a king because we've been we've gone through all these generations of judges and in the book of judges there there is a you know a nice even number of 12 judges right 
now when we get into first samuel we find out there's more and so <laughs> it's kind of interesting that even though this number 12 is established in the book of judges you know 12 wasn't the actual number but again it's it, there's a lot in here of of the sources that would point to the fact that this is a a compiled history that's done in a in a way to forward this narrative of of needing the king so this lays sort of the background and the groundwork for what's coming next you know next week we're going to talk about the book of ruth and then we're going to talk about the first i think it's seven chapters of first samuel and this is all they're, they're separate things but these are all still within laying the groundwork and and leading up to the creation of of the kingship and in in different ways so the book of ruth is a a story that is supposed to have occurred during this time and so not to get ahead of ourselves but the the point being that when we when we go through this book we're supposed to get a sense that the people are devolving more and more into type of anarchy or chaos and while they may be taking one step forward when they get a judge who can lead them into battle and and deliver them out of bondage and so forth they then end up taking something like two steps back and so we end we end the book in a place that's much worse than where we started the book and even the judges themselves there seems to be like a a steady moral decline over time of these judges they they start out as as a little bit you know higher virtuous and then over time you see them sort of degrading and it, and at certain point some of the later judges are are really considered to not be doing Israel any good and there's lots of atrocities and so forth so <clears throat> all that again to to push this narrative that Israel needs a king in order to unify them in order under the the law of God as well but also to get rid of uh, this sort of internal strife and chaos that's going on because in here we we also have recorded something of like a civil war right between the tribes and and the tribe of Benjamin that happens and seeing this the people then afterwards are very distraught about it and and that's another thing that's that's pushing for their unification under a monarchy. Ben, there's something I want to say about the structure of the book, but first I noticed, and the listener will notice that after what I said, after we experienced what I, what I, what I said about reading Joshua without having read judges and not knowing where we're going, Ben has actually read ahead. He's, he's, <laughs> he's read some Samuel and some Ruth. And so that's, that's our goal is to have that kind of sense in our come follow me study group on Sunday mornings where, you know, here we are recording weeks ahead of when this podcast come out or come, when this podcast comes out. And so by the time I get to that study group and I'm hosting that discussion, then I feel like I have a better sense of how this all fits together, right? And now when I'm talking about, you know, Deuteronomy, for example, as this week, as we're recording, you know, I, I know what came before and I know what comes next. And, and so I can do like Ben and and say, well, where this is going is. And so that's our commitment is to to read a little ahead, right? 
so yeah. that we don't find ourselves <laughs> in this place again. But thinking of the structure of the book, you know, we're, we're given these judges that I think you you said aren't really judges; they're heroes. Many of them are are military heroes, and so these heroes, we also have anti heroes, right? Right. And and there's sort of a the way it's set up is you have examples of how to be and how not to be, right? Do it like this. Don't do it like that. And they alternate back and That's forth. That's right. Yeah, right? there's an alternate. Between, yeah, between these two kinds of you know examples and anti-examples. And so I was reminded in that, you know, from a little later, right, in, in Roman times, but thinking in terms of literature, in terms of genre, in terms of how, how these things are done, in Roman times, we see this done in Plutarch in his famous Lives. Now, the Lives of Plutarch were read by gosh everybody i mean this was part of part of an education at least all the way up until the time of the the american founders john adams among other founding fathers loved plutarch queen elizabeth loved plutarch louis lamour much later loved plutarch earlier machiavelli wrote in the style of plutarch of using examples from people's lives to illustrate the points that he was making in his books, the discourses on the first decade of Titus Livius and the better known, The Prince. The same method is used by the New York Times bestselling author, Robert Greene, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power. And it's actually described by him in his other book, The 33 Strategies of War. He has a chapter where he tells you how Machiavelli does it. And in telling you how Machiavelli does it, he tips his hand and tells you how he's doing it, mm. which is chapter 30, penetrate their minds, communication strategies. But again, the idea is to to give you a sense of an example from a life. So this, what that means is that this isn't history, it's morality, right? The point, the point of Plutarch isn't to write history, it's to write on morality. And I think the same thing is true of the book of judges, you know, for Plutarch nowadays, because we lost, not we lost, but the sources that, that the historical sources that Plutarch had are lost to us. We now use him as a historical source. And so the lives that he wrote in pairs where he was comparing Greek and Roman lives have been separated. And you buy now Greek lives in one book and Roman lives in another book. But the idea here again is to compare lives. And to, and to use them as examples or anti-examples from Plutarch, well, the Book of Judges, Plutarch, Machiavelli, and Robert Greene today. It's, it's a formula that, it's a winning formula. I mean, it's done, it's worked really well for, well, for all the people who love Plutarch and for all the people who love Robert Greene. Yeah. So, I mean, along those lines of the structure of the book, we have almost an intro to this in chapter two, starting, I think it's around a verse 11, we have a description of the cycle. So I'm going to read from the NRSV on this. It says, then the Israelites did that, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshiped the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and worshipped Baal and the Astartes. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the power of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. 
Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring misfortune, as the Lord had warned them and sworn to them, and they were in great distress. When the Lord raised up judges, who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen even to their judges, for they lusted after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their ancestors had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not follow their example. So, and and then the, this goes on to to talk about this cycle. It, it's similar in some ways to a cycle that we identify kind of when we read the Book of Mormon as well. I wanted to mention about uh, Astarte that she is the queen of heaven and the, the equivalent, you know, the, to Aphrodite in, in the Greek tradition, Venus in the Roman tradition, Inanna in the Sumerian, and Ishtar in the Mesopotamian. Okay. The queen of heaven. So this is a this is a another divine feminine character, maybe not equivalent to what we've been reading with Ashura, but maybe the same type of illusion here that there's some sort of feminine deity that's worshipped. Right, and you can you can read more about her in Jeremiah forty four. Yeah, okay. That you know the Jer- we we mentioned that the Deuteronomists were these reforming priests. You know that it's possible that rather than Jeremiah coming out of the Deuteronomic tradition, that it's more likely that Jeremiah actually writes the Deuteronomists backwards. Right. So in other words, we have a we have a development of theology in the Bible. And as Latter-day Saints, we can see this and admit to it, and and we're okay with it, even though we say God is unchanging, and there's a contradiction there. But we, you know, we sit in that contradiction, we hold that tension, right? But despite this, so that we end up with the Deuteronomist saying that there's this heterodoxy in the in the worship of these female deities, and yet it's actually as we discussed last time in the book of Joshua, it's actually the the Orthodox and the, the Deuteronomists are trying to change that. And so what we want is to end up with this monotheism that they end up with later and then to write this history such that it was always that way. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point there. And because of the way that we see a lot of clues of that throughout the text and some of them are sort of hidden or disguised in certain ways, but by analyzing the text in a certain ways, some of that's been able to come out. Particularly, we talked about this when we did our episode on Deuteronomy. So a lot of that comes out in these these later, or I should say, these subsequent books that we're analyzing as well. One of the one of the first stories here in the book of Judges stands out to me, not for like any particularly profoundly meaningful way <laughs> just uh in the sense that it's it stands out is the story of ehud and i think i think rob bell really gets into this in in his uh, book what is the bible he he really likes this story about ehud who he's this left-handed benjamite which is kind of ironic right because benjamin means son of the right hand and so we have a left-handed benjamite who is going on this like solo mission to assassinate this king Eglon who is pressing, you know, has the Israelites in bondage, so to speak. And and he's successful because he's left-handed, because it, it allows him to conceal his weapon in a way that wouldn't have otherwise been possible because they only searched him 
assuming he was right-handed, right? And so he was able to hide his his weapon in a way that you wouldn't expect. It's interesting to note that that and you know, you're an Italian speaker, Ben, that the the right hand is the diestra and the left hand is the siniestra, the sinister hand. Sinister. Right? Yeah. The sinister hand. I I was, you know, I went to Catholic school and I was forced to be right-handed. You would have naturally been left-handed, you think? I was. I am naturally left-handed. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And so, like, uh, like the 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 character you're discussing, I was able to surprise my uh, opponents in boxing <laughs> once upon go. a time with my left hook, because it just you don't get that left hook from a right-handed guy. I'm not a right-handed guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recently watched a video about left-handedness and and talked about you know, whether this was a genetic thing, how is it that left-handedness had survived, you know, genetically among humans and, and the advantages that it, that it posed versus the disadvantage. It, it was kind of interesting, but that, I think that would have been, that might've been one of the reasons that this story stood out to me this time. Yeah. My father's left-handed. Yeah. The the imagery in this story is, is particularly gruesome, right? You know, Rob Bell really gets into it. He likes how, when he, puts the knife in that the fat closes around his hand right and he can't pull it out because it's stuck in the guy's fat and and then there's this really fascinating idiomatic expression he talked about how the guy was was in relieving himself you know he's in the bathroom and the idiomatic expression in hebrew that's used is he's covering his feet right the 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 idea there being that the clothes are down around his feet i just thought it was interesting that that that's the the expression is covering his feet and that means he's going to the bathroom which is our idiomatic or or euphemistic expression of you know that he's relieving himself right yeah i mean you and i have both had the experience of the squatty potty in the middle east right you have had that experience haven't you yeah yes (laughs) anyway it's one of these very colorful uh, stories in in the bible that stands out that you know sometimes people say hey you know if if we were to make a movie out of the stuff in the Bible, this would definitely, you know, have some not safe for children scenes, right? And yeah. <laughs> this is one of those. You know what else it reminded me of the story a little bit? The Hashashin, mm. where we get the word assassin yeah. right, from Islamic history. Right. A little bit different, but maybe <laughs> uh, there's something there that just reminded me of that. Those guys, they would, they became part of the royal court and gain trust over a long period of time and then just plunge the knife into the ruler. Yeah, that's where that assassinate word came from, right? Yeah, from the hashashin, because they were they were said to use hashish, right, the, the drug. Yeah. The next story we get to just going through the text is that of Deborah. And I know, Christopher, you have some things to say about Deborah. So she's one of very few women in the Bible referred to as a prophetess, right? I think we had... We had Miriam, Moses' sister, right, that's referred to as a prophetess. We have Deborah, who's referred to as a prophetess. I think there's one more. I can't think of who it is off the top of my head. But Deborah is is called a judge here as part of the book of Judges. And she is the only one who actually does some judging, right? The idea here is that Deborah was some sort of sage or or elder of the people that they would come to to judge their matters and it says she would sit under a palm tree and listen to the people as they brought these matters before her 
So there's symbolism behind the tree, but the story of Deborah, the character of Deborah, also can remind us a lot of other ancient oracles. So we have, especially in Greek history, the examples of different oracles, particularly the Oracle of Delphi, right? Where this is a a woman that people will go to in order to get information about this or that, you know, prophecies. And these are often used in military or military ventures. So they will go to the Oracle and say, Hey, should we attack this city or this country? And the Oracle will say something cryptic, you know, that, that you're supposed to interpret one way or another. And then the story turns out that it's like, Oh, well you, you interpreted it wrong. And so, you know, you didn't quite understand what the Oracle was saying. So there's, there's different stories like that with the Oracle. In this case, in Deborah, they do come to her and ask her about what they should do in these certain cases. And she does give them advice, but then ultimately she does get up and leave her palm tree and go and be a leader for them as well. But I just thought the, that the, the resemblance there between what Deborah was doing, sitting under the palm tree and, and giving judgment to people as they came, and then also giving military advice in, in a certain way was really, really, really close to what we see in other ancient texts as far as the oracles. So, Yeah, Ben, you know, one of the things that the first thing that stood out to me from this story was the tree, right? The palm tree. And I first made an association between, and also because there are a couple more things. So she's, there's the palm tree, she's sitting on a mount and she's halfway between this town and that, right? And so this reminded me right away of, on the one hand, the oracle at Delphi, who also sits on, on a mount on Mount Parnassus, who also receives, you know, who gives oracles from the god Apollo, who is, of course, a, a, a female. I, that, you mentioned that. And there are plants involved. There's no tree in that story, but there are plants involved, sometimes hallucinogenic plants. And there is, you know, there is the the hypothesis, right, that that some of these trees that we, we deal with, the terebinth, the oak, that these are the sources of hallucinogenics. And so, you know, if, if you get your ayahuasca, for example, from an oak tree, you might see biblically correct angels. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so there's there could be something to that. But at any rate. The, the other story that came to my mind is from the Islamic tradition, but it's, I say it's from the Islamic tradition. In the Quran, the nativity happens halfway between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So Mary is going from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and she doesn't make it. She stops under a date palm, and there's also, and she's fed by the date palm. And so right away, the first thing I saw is if Deborah is associated with a tree and she's a prophetess, there's something there in terms of it's the tree itself that gives me the image of the divine feminine, right? Some, something to do with, with there's some kind of connection there with the divine, with the tree, right? And so the same thing with, with Mary, you know, being the, the mother of Jesus, she's having the baby underneath this date palm. When she needs what to eat, she shakes the date palm and she's fed. Some water springs forth from a rock. And this story also appears, interestingly, in the Gnostic Gospels. So we have the, the Gospel of the Pseudo-Matthew Gospel, the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew. 
And it gives us a similar story. Now, that gospel says that that Mary stopped on her way to Egypt. This is with Jesus and Joseph after Jesus is born on their way to Egypt. And they stopped there and they got the dates and they got the water. And that was this way station, right? But if we look at the the, the Proto-Evangelion of James, now you have a, a, more, uh, a story that's more similar to the Quranic story where you actually have the birth taking place in the wilderness in the middle of the road, quote unquote. So again, that just made me think of Deborah too, in the middle of the road between the two towns. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting to note that in 1992, the Israeli authorities were widening the road between Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem. It's only about five miles distance. And they actually found a church. And this church, it's called the Kathismos Theotokos, the seat of the God-bearer. And the God-bearer is the Eastern Christian name for Mary, right? Theotokos, the God-bearer. And so this has something to do with Mary. And it turns out that on the floor of this church, it's an octagonal church, they found a mosaic. And this mosaic depicts a large date palm flanked by two other date palms. That image also has connections with other images of the divine feminine. Even uh, I can even think of the, in the Salt Lake Temple, there's what looks like to, what looks to be Aphrodite uh, flanked by two. What is it? There's I, re- I remember looking at an article about this earlier today. I don't remember the details of it, but so you have this this site, this pilgrimage site now, where this is this church was built in the fifth century, and around 560 to 570, you have a pilgrim. He's uh, anonymous and known as the Piacenza pilgrim who wrote on the way to Bethlehem at the third milestone from Jerusalem. I saw standing water, which came from a rock of which you can take as much as you like up, up to seven pints. It is indescribably sweet to drink. And people say that St. Mary became thirsty on the flight into Egypt. And then when she st- uh, stopped here, this water immediately flowed. Nowadays, there is also a church building there. So this is attested all the way back to the sixth century. Now, again, there are different versions of the story. The Gnostic Gospels could have been sources for the Quranic story. It mm-hmm. could work the other way around. Mm-hmm. It could be that, you know, the Quran even has a, a verse that says that God gave as a sign for Jesus, that he gave him and his mother what to eat and what to drink at that place. And that's ambiguous. It could have been at the Nativity. It could have been on the way to Egypt. But the point is there are different stories. And so you can see where if it became... If, if that was the place of the nativity, and then it became that that Bethlehem was the place of the nativity, then now the story has to be rewritten for that place. Now it's now it's something that happens on the way to to Egypt, right? So it's interesting to note this because again, the similarities between the two women and the tree and the place and and the connection with the divine in that way, and also because it should this these stories show that usually behind what we're reading in these texts, something happened, right? It may not be exactly as the text is telling us, but something happened. And there may be, and there usually are competing texts with different stories. And in the Bible, as we have it, which again is sort of arbitrary to even say the Bible, because what is the Bible? There are multiple Bibles. 
what books are included in, in, in your Bible depend on, you know, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, for example. Your tradition, yeah. Right, yeah. And so what, and then of course the process of canonization is kind of arbitrary too. So what is it that, which one of these stories is true? I don't know, but I know something happened. And so I thought this was a good, something good to bring up to show a few things. I hope that's clear. Well, you know, as you're talking, Christopher, I'm realizing there's there's actually more to add from um, a Latter-day Saint tradition as well. I mean, we talked about this previously, and that would be when we talk about Deuteronomy, and that would be Nephi, right? Because we've got the tree of life. I was just looking up First Nephi chapter 8, where Lehi has the vision of the tree of life, and it says that he's wandering in this this wasteland, right? And he he prays, and then all of a sudden he sees a tree. And the fruit is going to make him happy, right? So he goes to that tree. And then later when Nephi has the same vision, he sees the tree. And then he sees what? He sees a woman with a baby, with a child. And so (laughs) it's all kind of part. It seems like all kind of part of this imagery. The woman under the tree seems to be this motif returning. And it's this representation of the divine feminine that we talked about, you know, when we talked about Deuteronomy as well. You mentioned that... In one of the accounts here, we have a palm flanked by two other palms. Is that correct? That's right. That's in the that's the mosaic on the floor of the Cathismo Theotokos, the the seat of Mary Church. Yeah, I mean, how is that not a Christological reference, right? Calvary, you've got the cross, you got three crosses, right? You've got the cross with Christ in the middle, that would be the big one, and then you have the two on the other sides. So that seems like a a pretty stark reference to to that as well. What we have is a very <clears throat> You know, the Bible at at many times is a very condensed text. And so you get these little one words here, like she's sitting under a palm and it's like, well, why even mention that? Well, because there was something particular about this story that was significant to the people that, that included it. And it's not always easy to get at that. But when we, like you said, Christopher, when we compare this to other sources and other stories, we start seeing that there's something more significant going on here. Yeah, and when we take into account the rhetoric of the of the writers too and the you know the competing narratives, all these details we've been mentioning, it helps us to think about taking the text maybe less literally and more literarily mm-hmm. and to see to look more into the symbols and so we've tried to bring out some of those symbols and and there are there are many of them and there's there's a lot more than to these texts than that what meets the eye on the surface level. And so if you read them on the surface level, and if you read them literally, you're probably missing a lot. Now, it's interesting, though, of course, because going back all the way to our introduction to the Bible episode, it is the case, just as you brought out this Christological reading of of what you know I saw as something else, right, related to this, this story of the nativity halfway between Bethlehem and, and Jerusalem, you know, the, that we have one of the ways that the Bible has always been read is that things are not what they seem right on the surface, right? That there's something deeper here, but that is a fruitful reading. And so I know that, for example, you know, Riley Risto on Latter-day Contemplation, I think before I became co-host with him, it went through Lectio Divina and it's something that's come up again too. And I know there's a, a Facebook group that that Riley hosts on Lectio Divina, this idea of, of not reading the scriptures so much for some kind of history or some kind of 
even especially not morality. We've talked many times about how how morality just doesn't seem to be. You get, you doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like you can get your morality from the Bible. And as a matter of fact, another idea that that came up for me today that was brought up by one of my teachers, Ed Firmage Jr., is that you, it may even be that the Bible is actually a cautionary tale that's trying to tell us that that this idea of this focus on morality just doesn't work. I mean, it really, one thing we can say for sure is that the story tells us that it doesn't work, whether it's meant to, you know, whether that's all it's meant to do as a cautionary tale, maybe that's debatable, but it certainly does show us that, that this idea of, of this, you know, having this, this community that's going to be obedient, that's going to do all the things, right? It just doesn't happen. It's something that fails over and over and over. And that's the whole Bible. And so it may just be a cautionary tale. So we could read it in that way, much the same way as we at Latter-day Peace Studies read the Book of Mormon as a cautionary tale against the the warlike behavior that some read to be the point of the of the Book of Mormon, despite its contradiction to the mm-hmm. core teachings of Jesus. Right, right. Yeah, I know that that's definitely a good point on that. The the next chapter here after the story of Deborah is what is called the Song of Deborah. And it's basically a, a retelling of the story that happens in the previous chapter, but in poetic form. And once again, a completely different story. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's not really the same story. Yeah, it's just another source. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the oldest, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, this is considered so, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, surviving pieces of Hebrew writing. So this would be, you know, we know we have the book of Job as being one of the oldest, if not the oldest. And this would be somewhere around there like that as well. But whereas we may take the whole book of Job as that, it, we've got this one. And then, yes, there's also the poem that uh, Miriam gives. The Song of Moses? Yeah. Well, they call it the Song of Moses, but it's ostensibly Miriam that's actually the one that composed right. it, right? The Song of Moses that's really the Song of Miriam, right? Exactly. Yeah. In earlier sources, it's attributed to Miriam. It's only later that it's said it was Moses, but it's just the perspective thing. Anyway, and that recounts the the Exodus and and the sea and, and so forth. And so, yeah, a lot of these earliest sources were actually poetic because we talked about this when we when we went into poetry in one of the podcasts, but it, it you know, it's good to bring it up again at this point. One of the reasons that the earliest sources that survive are actually poetry is because the tradition starts out as an oral tradition, not as a written tradition. Okay, All of these things basically were first passed down and promulgated through an oral tradition long before they were ever written down. And so the way that that oral tradition most effectively and most commonly gets passed down so that it, it, it stays... Um, you know, I guess more true to its source or not necessarily that, but the way that you, you keep it in your memory, right? So we have a mnemonic device and, and the mnemonic device is the, of yeah. it. And so we went into that concept of, of how the poetry helps in that process and passing it down from one generation to another. And so again, these original sources that we see are very often poetry. Yeah, I'd like to insert a comment. You know, you hesitated a little bit to say that it's not that the, that this way of memorizing the poetry and passing it along. You know, that it's not necessarily the case that that gives us 
the the integrity right so um, some sort of literal integrity of the text and this is something that came out in scholarship in homer scholarship right where what's realized and i think it was part of what made this possible is that there are peoples today who still do this right is that you have these these poets that memorize these long poems but they don't actually memorize an exact version right that's something that we think of in terms of after it's written down, it has to be memorized in that way. What they did is they had these formulas. And so if you read something like the Iliad, you'll hear things like, you know, Hector is called tamer of horses. Sometimes he is, sometimes he's not. Sometimes there's more than one epithet that's used that way. And usually what's happening is that the poet is just inserting those to add syllables to get the rhyme because uh-huh. the story is somehow different. To get the cadence correct, yeah. Right. So somehow the this telling is a little bit different than the previous telling or other tellings. And that's just one of the pat answers to how do I get this into the into the rhyme that I need. It's just throw in these epithets. And so some translators leave them out because they, they say, look, they, they don't really have any function in a translation. Yeah, and in many oral traditions, you know, as far as poetry goes, rhyming the way that we think of rhyming in poetry now wasn't a thing because it wasn't the ending of words that you matched up, it was the beginning. And so alliteration was actually more important. And so just like you said, often what they would do is they would use a certain words or add a few words in there to get that alliterative pattern. And, and you, Christopher, you read an example of that, of, of the poetry that did a really good job in the translation of bringing out that poetic alliteration, whereas it wasn't like if you tried to do a word for word translation of the poem, it wasn't that. But what it did translate was the feel, right, of the poem. And that was what was was trying to be conveyed by the the poetic genre. Was that the Robert Alter translation of yeah, the Song I of Miriam? Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you have a choice to make. Either you have functional or dynamic equivalency. Either you go in translating, you're either going to go word for word, or you're going to go meaning for meaning, right? Sort of idea for idea. And so, if you want to bring the poetic value through the translation, you can't go word for word. And this is something that, if you, if you haven't studied a second language, may be difficult to understand. But if you have, you get it. Well, and then we see in the text, you know, maybe an example of trying to preserve both of those things, right? Because we have a prose of the account and then we have a poetry of the account and both, you know, present it in a certain way. And in order to not lose them, you you include both, right? When you're compiling everything. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's, you know, that's just one of the reasons why different accounts are included. I mean, I think the main reason is we can't get rid of any of these versions, right? I think the the redactors of this text knew that they were putting in contradictory tellings, you know, different mm-hmm. tellings that were contradictory of the same stories. And they couldn't, you know, just toss one out and keep the other, you know, then they, who are they to decide, you know, which is the right one. And so it's interesting how even how the, the Jews then go on and the whole tradition is about debating all the possible meanings of the text. They, yeah. they don't have the idea that we have as Americans, especially and Latter Day Saints are, you know, it's an American religion, even if it, it, even if it's global now, it's its origin is here in America, and so we have this idea that there's only one, you know, the only true and correct meaning, right? And that's just not how this works. Yeah, it's just not how the text is even constructed, right? And so you definitely have to wrestle with these these different perspectives within 
the text itself. And so that's that's one of the the great things about particularly the Old Testament. But you know, we'll we'll probably get into that discussion as well when we get to the New Testament because we've got in the New Testament we've got four gospels, right? And a lot of work has been done to try to sort of bring the gospels together and correlate them. And right. it, you know, it's ultimately you come to the conclusion that no, there's plenty of contradictions in there. And, you know, for the people that want everything to be all cut and dry and one right answer to everything, that's a really difficult, uncomfortable conclusion to come to. But, you know, the way that we're approaching this, it's like, Hey, it's, it's great. There's more than one way to view this out of the text itself. That's beautiful. Yeah. Good luck. You know, you have your synoptic gospels, <laughs> but then there's the gospel of John. Forget yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. It's so different. Going to chapter six, I thought there was an interesting footnote here on this. Now, not, sorry, not just footnote, but commentary. Chapter six, verses seven through 10. This is, you can kind of see in the flow of the text that this isn't exactly, it doesn't fit right with the flow of the text. So you get at the end of verse six, and if you skipped all the way to verse 11, the text flows just fine. And one of the things that scholars have noted about this is that the Dead Sea Scrolls that were later discovered, they're missing verses seven through 10. And so they think that this is very likely a later addition to this text as as a way of sort of driving the the narrative home the deuteronomist narrative of you know oh the people rejected god and that's why they were punished and so forth so yeah it's interesting to me that we have this article of faith that that says we believe the bible to be the word of god as far as it is translated correctly but i just don't see what the issue is with translation if we're worried about translation we have nowadays you, you can learn the original languages you can read the original text. Now, I do say text with an S on the end because there. it turns out there is no, just like there's no the Bible, which mm-hmm. because, you know, there are different ways of collecting the text. There are also so many texts and they're, they're not, they don't all match up. And you just gave an example, sure. one example of that. Well, the texts themselves are translations, right? And so I think that's where you can run into to part of this is that, well, you know, yes, we can translate from the text that we have. But sometimes those are are already removed from, quote unquote, an original, right? Sometimes there are. And, and then it also helps to understand what Joseph Smith thought of as translation, which sometimes, oftentimes, it has nothing to do with reading one language and writing what you read in another language, but rather is moving things from one context to another. Right. Context and culture and time. Yeah. Th- that's what we see here, right? Even this... Whether it's the redactors putting, you know, bringing these texts together, whether it's the whoever wanted to interpolate something so that they can make their point, there's a lot of this going on in the text. And and you know, I think I remember one of my teachers saying something like, I think he said, I don't remember if it was eighty or ninety percent. He says eighty to ninety percent of the Bible is pseudepigraphal, right? Something <laughs> like that. So I don't know that. That there's, you know, that this idea that the word of God is, you know, as far as the translate character, first of all, what is that? How are you supposed to know? Secondly, if if 80 to 90 percent of it is pseudepigraphal, now what? Right. I mean, it's, yeah. that's what do you do with that? Do you have any ideas, any ideas what to do with that, Ben? Well, you know, you've said something before that I thought was interesting, Christopher. You know, you said when you 
talk with your kids about scripture and and help them engage mm-hmm. with scripture that you also encourage them to write scripture right and so yes. i think you know on the one hand when we when we look at something that's pseudepigraphal i think sometimes maybe the 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 inclination the tendency might be to say that if it's pseudepigraphal that there's some sort of deception involved right and i think that we that may be true in some cases but we can step back from that and say no like a lot of times when something's pseudepigraphal it's actually there there is good intent behind that not necessarily a deceptive intent in the sense that we're not trying to pass something off as legitimate that's not we're merely putting into we're more legitimizing what we believe to be correct and what we do the way that we do that is we go back and we use a previous authority now again that can seem deceptive but from a religious standpoint if you feel that your interpretation is right and true and what god wants there's not a deception that's intended right so that's a great answer the story here in chapter 6 gets into gideon and people may be familiar with the story of story of gideon but one of the things that happens in here is how gideon is called as a prophet right and I, I say, I knew the story of Gideon, but I, I didn't remember how Gideon was called as a prophet. I was like, oh, well, there's the fleece. Well, right. But before that, what happens? Well, guess what? It's an angel that comes out of the portal of a sacred tree. And he shows up to call Gideon as a prophet. And it almost seems like here we have this, this little breadcrumb clue of this continuance of the worship of Asherah because what Gideon is is he's responsible for him and his family are 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 keepers of a shrine and that shrine is of sacred poles and so it's Asherah that's the the worship that that was going on there now later he's commanded to like tear all that down right but sure you know we, we could go into how that can happen but I just thought it was interesting that he gets his call from an angel that comes out of the portal of a sacred tree. So fascinating. Of course, that could be the the ayahuasca too, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm only half kidding. <laughs> I know you're only half kidding. Sure. The story of Gideon is, as scholars have said, though, almost le- almost certainly a blend of at least two sources. And one of the clues from this, for this, among other clues, is the part where they go and they they surround the Midianites and they're supposed to have in their hands jars, torches, and trumpets. Now, the text does this funny thing that says, oh, well, they put the torches in the jars. But then they throw the jars down and break them. So <laughs> it doesn't really work. They would have had to have three hands to do what the text says they're doing. And so anyway, scholarly analysis of this says that there's actually two sources going on that are put together in this. And it's probably you know, jars and torches or torches and trumpets. It's probably two out of three here, not all three. thought that was kind of an interesting point to be made there about, about multiple sources as well. That's like in my translation business. Good, fast, cheap, pick two. You can't have all three. <laughs> we get to chapter nine here. And I, I don't I know that we're going to go into a lot of like the story of stuff that's going on here. This is where Abimelech comes into the story and Jerobabel and everything. But there's there's this fable that's told about trees, 
right? Here we just keep talking about trees, Christopher. We can't get off of trees, right? I so, can't get enough of talking about trees personally. <laughs> you still There's a guy in my ward who works with trees, and, and even he yeah. thinks I talk about trees too much. <laughs> even the arborist thinks you talk about trees yeah. too much. You still need to do that contemplation episode on trees, right? <laughs> I'm going to bring him along. He's going he's gonna, to, if you're listening, I'm going to bring you along. We're going to talk about trees. So we have this, this what's called a fable, you know, story here told about trees. And, and it's that they went out to anoint a king over themselves. The trees needed a king. And so, you know, first they go to an olive tree and the olive tree's like, why would I want to be a king? I would have to leave all of my olives. And then they go to a fig tree and the fig tree says, why would I want to do that? I have to leave all my figs. And so they, they go down, they get to a bramble tree. And the bramble tree is like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. You just have to all come to my shade. You have to come here and I'll rule over you. And this, I thought, was was an interesting political commentary almost. You know, the it's that the people often or the, the trees, right, in this case, the the trees that would make good rulers don't want to be rulers. And the rulers that that won't make or the trees that won't really make good rulers, right, this bramble tree. Right. This is a a tree that can't even give a fig, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no fruit. Right. Yeah. And and getting close to it, it's uh, it, spiny and, you know, it's it's a violent tree. Right. For for lack of a better term. But this one. Oh, yeah. It's totally willing to be the the king of all the trees I, I saw in this. And and it's not so obvious in the text, but I saw sort of some political commentary. It reminded me of this this quote from Douglas Adams. He he wrote some some really good <laughs> books like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and stuff like that. So he says this, he says, the major problem, one of the major problems for there are several, one of the many major problems with governing people is that of whom you get to do it, or rather of who manages to get people to let them do it to them. To summarize, it is a well-known fact that those people who must want to rule are ipso facto those least suited to do it. To summarize the summary, anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. Amen. <laughs> this, I think, uh, is is going to be relevant to our discussion in the next couple weeks as we come into the, the monarchy that becomes yes. established, right? Indeed. And it's not next week, but the week after that when we get to Samuel 8. And Samuel 8 has some just really fascinating principles in it that that for years, Shiloh, I have also used to, to analyze other scripture and stuff. So there's some interesting, some interesting commentary to be made there. So we um, get to wax political. Yeah, we get to wax political a little All bit. All right. <laughs> Back to our old roots. <laughs> then we have a very prominent account of Samson. The story of Samson is... There's there's some similarities between it and various other figures in the Bible. You know, you have a messenger of God that comes to a woman that doesn't have children and tells her that she's going to have a son and then that son has a particular mission to fulfill, right? So that's what happens with Samson. It's what happened with Isaac, right? Because Sarah overhears the messengers from God, these angels that are talking with Abraham and that's the whole laughing thing that happens with Sarah. Later, we're going to get 
this with, in the New Testament, right, we've got John the Baptist. This happens with John the Baptist. Although the angel doesn't come to John the Baptist's mother, right? At least not in the text. Uh, it comes to Zechariah. And then we have this, most notably with Jesus, with Gabriel coming to uh, Jesus. And so <clears throat> there's, there's, I think there's at least uh, a couple other examples in the scripture of this, this kinds of thing. But all this to say that when the story of Jesus is written, it is definitely an allusion to these Old Testament types of a of a son being born to a woman that doesn't have children. Not necessarily a woman that is barren, but a woman that doesn't have children and that there's a particular mission for that person, for that son that's being born. So the book ends... As I talked about previously at the beginning, with this statement that there's no king, the implication is that it, it's there's no order, right? The people have descended into uh, chaos. Not only that, is they've strayed from God once again, right? They're worshiping all these other gods, and this is where the book of Samuel is going to pick up after we have the, the story of Ruth, and the people are going to be calling for a king uh, to unite them, and and. Part of the the rationalization there would be also to bring them back into a monotheistic type of setting with worshiping just the one God. Well, Ben, I can't wait to talk about politics in, <laughs> in, in the book of Samuel, but I, I really can't wait to talk about religion in the book of Ruth. So here we are talking about politics and religion, keeping it real. You know, wait, we're not supposed to do this, are we? Those are the things you're not supposed to talk about. Yeah. Well, right. Well, that's what sorry, makes it, guys. Makes it fun. Yeah. Well, it's been a great discussion, Ben. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. Good to talk with you about it. So until next time, I'm Ben Peter. Christopher Hurtado. Thanks. <laughs>